If you have a Bible today, uh, we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, but there are also Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. It's, uh, the passage is on page uh, 1,796, I think, 1796. We'll be looking at that passage in due course. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But I, I just wanted to say what a delight it is for me to be back here today at Henson. I, I love this congregation. I love your leaders, one of them especially. <laughs> but I love, but I, I, truly, I have dear and wonderful friends here. And uh, it's, it's just great to see uh, what the Lord is doing in your midst and, to, and just to be encouraged by being, by being with you and catching up with uh, old friends. Well, let's pray together uh, before we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I read an article recently on Generation Y. Generation Y is those who were born in the late 1970s to the mid-1990s. The article said that those who were born in that time period are often unhappy. Why? Because their lives don't match their expectations. Generation Y doesn't want to just make money and survive. They want to follow their passions. They, they want to live out and fulfill their personal dream. They want to be fulfilled. Paul Harvey, a University of New Hampshire professor and a reputed Generation Y expert, said that Gener- Generation Y has, quote, unrealistic expectations and a strong resistance toward accepting negative feedback and an inflated view of oneself. He says a great source of frustration for people with a strong sense of entitlement is unmet expectations. They often feel entitled to a level of respect and rewards that aren't in line with their actual ability and effort levels. And so they might not get the level of respect and rewards they are expecting. So Generation Y tends to expect joy and fulfillment. But they get frustrated because life is hard, isn't it? Life is full of curveballs. Life is full of difficulties. If you expect to be rewarded with happiness, you usually don't get it. What did Jesus say? He who loses his life will find it. Generation Y is rather lawless, which means that they think they should be complimented and praised even if they don't keep the rules. They tend to think they should be rewarded simply because they're so wonderful and they're so special. They don't, therefore, understand grace and mercy because they think they're too wonderful. To, to need grace, well, all of us not born in those years, maybe we're complimenting ourselves a little bit. 
At least I wasn't born in Generation Y. Thank God I wasn't born in Generation Y. But of course, that's not just a generational problem, is it? It's a human problem. We, we, we all face these things, don't we? And, and actually, things aren't that simple because we're all prone to another error as well. And that's the error of the Pharisee. Well, what does the Pharisee say? My, my effort, my, my moral excellence is such that I should be rewarded. Pharisees tend to think they don't need grace because, because they've met the standard, because, because they've merited the reward. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says no, doesn't it, to both of these paths. It gives us a different way, a, a better way. And Paul wants to reshape our thinking and our living by helping us understand the new covenant that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 3. We kind of break into the middle of his discussion here. But in this passage, Paul is responding to those who are doubting his apostleship. He's responding to those who are questioning his credentials as an apostle. And he explains, what is it that makes my gospel different? So let's read that passage, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Are we beginning, Paul says, to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So I want to look at today three truths in these verses. First, if you're taking notes, the best credentials are changed lives. The best credentials are changed lives. Second, we don't have the power to live a new life. We, we don't have the power to live a new life. And third, our only hope, our only hope is a new covenant ministry. That's our only hope, a new covenant ministry. So first, the best credentials are changed lives. That's verses 1 and 2. The Corinthians were obsessed with whether Paul had the right credentials for ministry. For, for there were false apostles, false teachers, and they're charging Paul with lacking the right credentials. I mean, that seems hard to believe, doesn't it? How could anyone doubt the apostle Paul? But, but that's the way it is in the real world, right? When, when Paul was there, he was sharply criticized when he was living. Actually, when we, if you read the whole of 2 Corinthians, in a way, the whole letter is about this. Paul's responding to criticisms of his 
ministry. So if you're criticized in your life, you're not alone. Paul faced that very sharply. So it's helpful for us to see how does Paul respond to criticism. All of us are tempted, aren't we, to find our worth in what other people think about us. And when we're criticized, that that really comes to the surface, doesn't it? Uh, First of all, I want you to notice how often Paul addresses the issue of commendation in this letter. That's kind of a big word. But commendation has to do with what other people think of you, right? It has to do with whether other people praise you and they like you. So I'm going to read several verses here. Maybe you just want to jot down the reference because I don't think you'll be able to keep up with me. But first, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says to the Corinthians, I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. You know, a bit defensive there, right? Paul says, I really shouldn't have to commend myself. You Corinthians, you should be commending me. Instead of being duped by these so-called super apostles who are really false apostles. So the issue comes up again. We're not going in order here. In 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, and the we here stands for Paul, we are not commending ourselves to you again. So there it is again. But we're giving you cause to boast about us, us apostles, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Look, Paul says, honestly, this isn't about you commending me. What I'm worried about is that you'll be taken in by these false teachers, that you'll be taken in by these false apostles because they boast about themselves. They apparently have great self-images. They think very highly of themselves. They think they're wonderful and special. The false apostles would have fit perfectly into Generation Y, wouldn't they? 2 Corinthians 10.12. The issue comes up again. 10.12, Paul says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. So there's our word. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So Paul's saying again, look, this issue of who's commending themselves, everything's out of whack here, isn't it? These false apostles are obsessed with what other people think about them. And how do they commend themselves? They play the comparison game, don't they? They vie to see who's better. Incidentally, parenthetically, that's, that's one way to boost our fragile egos, isn't it? We compare ourselves to others. And, 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 we, can, and we can see ourselves... As, as better. I mean, I know it can happen the other way as well. But maybe we think, I'm not as lazy as that person is. I, I work harder than them. I, I don't spend so much money as that person does. You know, my temper's not the best, but it's certainly not as bad as that person's. Or, or I, I, I'm more gifted. I mean, really, when I look at myself, I, I can see I'm more gifted 
than this other person. Paul says if we play that game, we have no understanding. Why not? It really doesn't matter what we think of ourselves. And it really doesn't matter what other people think about us. The only thing that matters is what God thinks about us. Well, that brings us to our passage to the day. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. So let's read those verses again. Paul says, so I, hope, I hope you have the sense here of this emphasis on commendation. Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You know, Paul has to defend himself a bit in this letter. Because in doing so, he's supporting the gospel because these other people are false apostles. But what are these opponents and false apostles saying to the Corinthians? They're saying... Hey, where's Paul's credentials? Does he have letters of reference from Jerusalem? He doesn't. Does he have a letter from Peter or John endorsing him? He doesn't have those letters. Why not? Because he's a fake. That's why. What kind of apostle is he anyway? He never walked and talked with Jesus like the other 12, did he? No. He's not a real apostle. Where did he come from? Now, now how does Paul answer that charge? In answering the charge, he's also defending the gospel, isn't he? Paul says, I don't need to recommend myself. I don't need reference letters. Why does he say this? What's Paul's answer? You see it? His answer is brilliant. He's writing to the Corinthians. His answer is irrefutable. His answer leaves the Corinthians with nothing to say in reply. For he says, you want a letter? I've got a letter. You want a recommendation? I've got a recommendation. And what is it? It's you. It's you. It's your conversion. It's your new life. You were converted under my ministry. You deny that? How are they going to deny that? We're not really Christians. (laughs) Of course they believe they're Christians. And Paul says, how did you become Christians? Through me. Is he bragging here? Well, we'll come back to that. But that's his answer, isn't it? My apostleship is verified by your conversion, by your transformation. Paul is something better than a piece of paper. Everyone can read everywhere. The Corinthians have been changed. They've been transformed by the gospel They love Jesus now. The best credentials aren't pieces of paper, but changed lives, aren't they? You know, reference letters, they're common in our culture. They're good. We need them. Still, reference letters are filled with exaggeration. I I write a lot of them. It's kind of the genre, isn't it? I mean, you kind of think, well, what's everybody else saying? So you you kind of got to match what we're doing in our culture. One of my professors said long ago, he said, When I read reference letters, I think the gods have become men and have descended among us, right? (laughs) It's kind of like that, isn't it? But Paul's saying far more important is the impact we have on other people. Here's a sign 
that we're truly believers? Are you touching other people? Are you affecting other people? Are you influencing other people for Jesus Christ? We have different gifts, don't we? But do you talk to Jesus Christ with your friends, both believers and unbelievers? Do you encourage them in the things of Jesus Christ? Do you meet with others, maybe to study something, to talk to them about Jesus, or just encouraging family members or unbelievers to think about Jesus. You know, I don't have time to tell this story, but I was converted through the witness of the person who's now my wife, and she just has such a gift of talking about Jesus all the time. And that's what struck me about her, in just natural ways, talking about how the Lord has influenced her life. How easy it is for all of us, I'm including me here, how easy it is for us to live to please people instead of to please God. When you think of your job, what you do there, or your neighbors, and your conversations with them, or those you interact with at church, is it your goal to please people? Or to please God. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Why is the fear of man a snare? It's something that catches us up, right? Trips us up. Because we fear people, because we're hoping it will bring joy and satisfaction and fulfillment to our lives. But it never really satisfies. It's like throwing a coin down a bottomless well. It never, it never splashes. It never, it never clinks. Now, we were made to find joy by knowing God. We were made to find joy in fellowship with God. You know, if joy is drying up in your life, what, are you near to God? Have, have you wandered from him in your life? It can, it can happen all so easily to all of us, can't it? We, we can become so consumed with our reputation and with what we're doing all the time. And it's really a form of idolatry, isn't it? That we forget about finding our rest in God and knowing him and loving him. When we know God, well, we will touch others' lives. So that's, that's the foundation, isn't it? The fa- I'm not saying try to influence others for Jesus. You know, work hard at that. No, no draw near to God. Draw near to Jesus Christ. And you will touch others. It, it will happen. I'm not saying there's not planning and activity, but that's, that's, the, that's the foundation, isn't it? Knowing God. And, and that's how we conquer the Fear of people. Not perfectly. We don't conquer it perfectly in this life. I'm not talking about perfection here. We all struggle with it, don't we? But, but knowing God and loving God and having fellowship with God lifts us out of a focus on trying to fear people. The, the smile of Jesus Christ and the approval of God means more to us. Was the apostle bragging here? You're our letter. Right? I converted you. Is he bragging? That brings us to the second truth. And it's this. We, we don't have the power. We don't have the power to live a new life. 
That's in verse 5. Now we come to Paul's true estimate of himself. Is he really qualified to be an apostle? Because that's the question. You're not qualified, they're saying. You know, imagine if that were said to you. That's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? The false apostles compare themselves with themselves. They brag about their signs and their wonders. Or in today's language, they brag about how big their churches are or what they've written or how many hits they have in their blog posts or how many Twitter followers they have. But that all shows signs of spiritual poverty, doesn't it? One sign that we know ourselves truly is if we're aware of our spiritual inadequacy and our weakness. This is what Paul says in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So Paul knows where the power comes from. He knows he can't do it on his own. That's the Apostle Paul. Do you know that about yourself? You can't please God. You can't draw near to God on your own. You know, Jeremiah knew this truth. When Jeremiah was very young, God called him to be a prophet. How did he respond? I've always wanted to be a prophet. No. He was terrified. This is what he said. Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. Jeremiah thought, what do I have to say? I'm young. And plus, he probably thought, I get nervous speaking in front of others. I don't want to be a prophet. But the Lord said to him, don't say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them. He was afraid of them, wasn't he? Don't be afraid of them. Why? For I'm with you. I'm with you to deliver you, declares the the Lord. Don't be afraid. Whatever God calls you to do in life, don't be afraid. Do not fear. This is the first rule of of spiritual life, whatever God calls us to do. How can we do it? Here's the first rule. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. That's the first rule. You know, I just came across a song recently. I'm sort of an occasional fan of Johnny Cash. You know, I get into Johnny Cash and then I ignore him for a long time. But I, 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 just, I just came across a song he, he, he sings called Help Me. Maybe you know that song. I, I was just so uh, taken by that song. Because when Johnny Cash sings that song, the brokenness of his life just resonates through the song. He's broken. And when he says, help me, you feel it. He means it. And he's he's praying to God in this song, help me. He says, I used to think I could make it on my own. I used to think I didn't need anybody. But now I know I desperately need help. Help me. Help me. We need the power of God. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the vine. We're just branches. 
Just simple, helpless branches. But if we're connected to the vine, we're empowered, aren't we? We're strengthened. Every moment we depend upon Jesus as as the vine, we just receive nourishment and strength and power from him. We rely upon him for everything. You can't be the parent God wants you to be. As Michael preached so wonderfully last week, you can't be the parent God wants you to be apart from the grace of God. You can't be the child God wants you to be apart from the grace of God. You can't do your job the way God wants you to do your job. Can you do your job without God? Are you competent to do your job? Well, in some respects, yes, but fundamentally, no. You're not going to touch people with Jesus if you're not drawing strength from the vine on your job. You may do it externally, but you can't do your job in the way that's glorifying to God without the power of God. God loves, this is great news, God loves to strengthen those who feel a great sense of their inadequacy. God's glorified in that case. By the grace of God, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, when I start getting proud in my life, which is basically all the time, it starts surfacing. But I've found, and I bet you have too, God knows how to keep us humble and dependent. Because he brings circumstances into my life, and he brings circumstances into yours that remind me again, I need him. I can't make it on my own. That's the grace of God, isn't it? He brings things into our life that are difficult and hard. Because he loves us. Because he wants us to depend upon him. He wants to remind us, you can't do it. You can't do it without me. You're weak. You're a child. He gets all the glory then, doesn't he? We get all the help. We get all the strength. That brings us to our last truth, the third truth. Our our only hope is a new covenant ministry. That's verses 3 and then 4 through 6. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. And he goes on to say, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul, he knows he's inadequate, but he's full of confidence in his ministry. And it's not self-confidence, is it? His confidence is in Jesus. For the Corinthians are Jesus' letter and the Spirit's letter. But, but he says he's Christ's servant. He's Christ's courier. He's Christ's agent. The Corinthians are a supernatural letter. When, when people see the Corinthians' lives, they say, Christ wrote that. Christ wrote that. You know, this is true in Peter's life, wasn't it? When Jesus was on trial and a servant girl, basically a slave, asked him, do you know Jesus? He wilted, didn't he? He wilted. No, I don't know. He was so frightened. But later in Acts 3, strengthened 
by the Lord. He boldly testified to the religious leaders when his life was in danger that he knew Jesus, and Jesus is the only way of salvation. Peter's life was a letter of Christ, but on his own, he couldn't make it and he couldn't do it. Notice also that God's commands can't change us. Listen to that. Notice that God's commands can't change us. Isn't that strange? Many people put their confidence in moral rules. If only, how could the world be changed? What's wrong with Portland or, or all the cities, right? If, if, if only we could educate people on how they should live, then life will be far better. If only everyone were taught to be nice and accepting and loving, we'd have a far better world. We, we just need to teach them these things. Teach them their morals. The Bible, shockingly, disagrees. Now, Paul's thinking here of the Ten Commandments, isn't he? That's clear. He refers to tablets of stone. The stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. The commandments, of course, are good. Okay, you heard that? The commandments are good. They instruct us in the way to live. Yes, people do need commandments. I'm not disputing that. The problem is they're engraved on stone. The problem is they stand outside of us instead of in us, in our hearts. So Paul says the letter, and here he's standing for the, that stands for the law, that stands for the commandment. That letter, that law kills us. It puts us to death. Commandments tell us what to do, but they don't give us the power to do what they command. So, if you're an unbeliever today, and if you're a believer too, but especially for unbeliever, I want you to listen to this. It may shock you. Being a Christian doesn't mean trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Does it? It doesn't mean that you're trying to be a nice person. It is a good thing to be a nice person. But that's not what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. To be a believer in Jesus Christ means that you don't trust in yourselves, fundamentally, and, and what you can accomplish on your own. It, you know, if we focus on rules instead of Christ, what happens? We begin to think, well, I'm a good person. I, I've kept the rules. I, 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 deserve, I deserve a final reward. But Christianity says, no, the law came in. You see it? The law came in to kill us. The commands were given to put us to death. The commands were, were, were given to show us that we can't keep what is commanded. The, the commands don't give us life. Just the opposite. They destroy us. They uncover us. So, so, so if you read the commands and think I'm doing pretty well, you're misunderstanding the commands. Because Jesus' commands are deep, aren't they? It's not just don't commit adultery, it's, it's don't lust in your heart. And none of us keep that command. It's not just don't murder, it's, it's don't get angry. No, the, the, the law uncovers our need. Our only hope then, our only hope then is to be forgiven of the evil we've done. And that's why Christ died on the cross. 
Because he lived a perfect life and never sinned. He always obeyed God because he wanted to. It was in his heart, right? As the God-man. He took the punishment we deserved upon himself so that if we trust in him, we're saved from the curse and the judgment we deserve. And then, yes, then he empowers us to live new lives, doesn't he? Then he empowers us to live a new kind of life. But even then, our lives aren't perfect. So our only hope is the cross, not, not in our morality, not in our goodness. That, that's the shocking thing, because many people think what, what Christians are just people who are trying to be good. No, Christians are those who recognize they're not good and that they need, that they need a Savior. You know, we can even fall into that as Christians, can't we? We can begin to think that commands and rules are fundamentally what the Christian life is about. But that's not what it's about. And even as Christians, we can begin to think we're good people. And then we can fall into the problem of being a Pharisee. Thinking we keep outward rules. And then we aren't humble anymore, but mean. And judgmental. And cynical. And critical. Are those things happening in your life? What do you like at home? Are you loving and joyful and kind? Or are you mean, judgmental, critical, cynical? Well, we see here that life comes from the spirit, not the letter. The law comes from outside and doesn't transform us. But if we're Christians, the spirit, the spirit writes the law on our hearts. Michael read earlier the passage today from Ezekiel 36, right? Israel, as God's people, he mentioned this earlier, Israel, as God's people, didn't keep God's law, and so they were sent into exile. Israel was put to death by the law. The letter of the law killed them, but God promised he would give them his spirit. Let me, let me read this passage in Ezekiel again. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. It's so significant. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. See, that's the problem. Stony hearts. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. So before we're Christians, our hearts are hearts of stone. We need fleshly hearts in the sense of pliable hearts. Hearts that are soft and compliant to God's demands. But by birth, we're stubborn and we're resistant to God. So we need a heart transplant. And that's what happens when we receive the Holy Spirit. That's what Jeremiah prophesied as well. So when the Spirit puts the law in our hearts, we have a new desire. We have a new desire to do what God commands. We have a new desire to be patient with that fellow church member who can be difficult. When tempted by sexual sin, we have a new desire to want to put it to death. Because now we love God. When we find anger beginning to arise in us, we repent and ask God to restore us and to give us victory over our anger. And as Christians, we're grieved now 
when we disobey. Why are we grieved? Are you grieved when you disobey? Why? Because we love God. Not because we've broken a rule fundamentally. Yes, we need the commands, but that's not fundamentally what it's about. That's what it's like when we're in love, right? When I hurt Diane, and I speak impatiently to her, and I do do that, I'm not disappointed. I don't think I just broke a rule. No, what grieves me is when I see the hurt on her face. When I see how she's responding to me. Why does that grieve me? I don't think, oh, I just broke a rule. I think, I love her. Why am I hurting the person I love? How did that just happen? That's what it's like when we have the Holy Spirit, isn't it? He makes us new. And we have new desires and affections we didn't have before. And we want to obey God because we love Him. And where'd that come from? Where'd that love come from? From the Holy Spirit. It didn't come from me. And it didn't come from you. So as we close today, we have seen that when we have the Holy Spirit, we think less about how much people like us and praise us, and we think more about what God thinks of us. That's because God's love is in our hearts now. We don't long to do right because it's a rule. That doesn't mean we don't need rules, but that's not fundamentally what it's about. We long to do right because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christian, God has made us new in giving us his Spirit when we trust in Jesus. Let's bow our heads and Pray together. Let's, but let's pause for a moment and just meditate for a moment on what God has taught you today in this message. As you're quiet for a moment, think about what you can take home with you today. Oh Lord, we give thanks for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We praise you for making us new, for giving us a desire to do your will. May we continue to find, Lord, our greatest delight in you. Keep us from finding our joy in the praise that comes from people. And Lord, may you remind us daily that we can do nothing in our own strength and that we need fresh grace for every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.